RPC Sermons Podcast. Today's episode is a special episode from our Facebook Live series entitled Closing the Distance. These are unscripted conversations with the pastors of RPC and various special guests reflecting on topics from our ongoing sermon series. If you're interested in learning more about this community of faith, visit roswellprez.org. Okay, welcome to Closing the Distance. Always look forward to this time um, immediately following the sermon to spend some time debriefing. Uh, and Jeff preached yesterday, so we're looking at his sermon. It was such a good sermon, so I'm really excited about this conversation. We're recording or, or live streaming, I guess, and posting the podcast a day late because yesterday Jeff was participating in the Roswell Rotary golf tournament it wasn't available at noon and he was just telling me some big news jeff tell us the big news about yesterday at the rosal rotary golf tournament well Lindsay, it was we did it for charity and the um uh, the president of the rosal rotary is a member at rpc so i felt a certain obligation to join him and support him in uh his golfing and we we won the first flight we there's a morning flight and then afternoon when we, we won now i'll let you know that uh, it's what's called the net division, which means they take into account your handicap. So there have been some allegations that there were inflated um, handicaps. Right. I, mine was fair. I felt like we all played above probably where we usually would, but that's, that's the game. <laughs> so now, so John Carruth is the president of Rotary that you're just referring to. Was he on your team as well? Yeah, yeah. He was the host. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so maybe I understand why there's some allegations since the, the Roswell Rotary president and his pastor are on the same team and they, surprise, they win. <laughs> but we shot well, a 58, done. we shot a 58, and then it was adjusted by nine strokes. So that's like, what, 49? So that's pretty, well, that's pretty good. Congratulations. You know? I mean, some people had a more higher, like they got adjusted like 12 strokes. So we were, you know. Yeah. Well, but let's just say, let's just say, none of us are quitting our day jobs. So. <laughs> well, nonetheless, congratulations on your win. That's always fun. And it is for charity. So that's very exciting. Uh, and then in just a few days here, this, this next coming Monday is the RPC golf tournament. And so we are looking forward to seeing if you'll be able to pull out uh, a victory two Mondays in a row. I'm going to do my best. Jesus. I do it for Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, I'm glad then that we can make time today to talk about your sermon on Sunday. It was such a good sermon. Um, it's always so fun. What people don't know, because they don't get to sit next to you like I do, is that um, after your sermon, you're, you come back in your height. And so uh, so I'm excited then to, to talk about, because it's such a good sermon, um, to talk about all the things that you were so excited about as well. 
we are working our way through several of the creeds and confessions in our book of confessions. And the confession we were looking at this past Sunday was the second Helvetic, which uh, all cards on the table is not exactly my favorite confession in the book. So I super appreciated your perspective on it yesterday, uh, Sunday. Um, I thought that that it was really helpful to me and made me appreciate it a lot more. But before, so before we kind of dive into that, just to help get people oriented, plus we're 48 hours later, give us just a little historic background on the Second Helvetic Confession and why it even exists in the first place. Yeah, so there uh, are three Reformation era confessions that come from European countries. You have the Scots Confession, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago from Scotland. You have the Heidelberg Catechism from Germany. And then you have the Second Helvetic Confession. And Helvetic is just a Latin word meaning Swiss. And so the, it was written in um, Switzerland. Obviously, um, you know, John Calvin uh, in Geneva, uh, Switzerland was very important. A reformed leader there. I think it was Henrik Bullinger who wrote it, um, and he was a pastor. He preached twice a week. He'd actually read it. Uh, he wrote it to um, kind of summarize his own personal faith convictions, and then I believe, I, if I have my history right, I think it was um, some people said it wasn't reformed, uh, that the uh, Switzerland uh, politicians weren't reformed enough. And so they turned to him and he produced uh, this, the second Helvetic confession that he had written on his own uh, to, and it became kind of the Swiss perspective on, um, on theology and life um, uh, out of the Reformation. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, he had just written it for funsies, right? He, he just kind of written it just to kind of say what he believed. And so then they circle back and they're like, Hey, didn't you have that document? <laughs> so just, yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. I mean, he was a pretty impressive thinker. And I mean, these guys, and most of them were men, unfortunately, but um, I mean, they just had so much in their heads. Like they had scripture memorized. They had the early church mothers and fathers texts memorized, Augustine. I mean, and just, and so they could just pull it out uh, from memory. It was quite, um, quite incredible. Um, but yeah, it's like, I think it was sick. In our book of confessions, it's like 65 um, pages long. It's not short. And, you know, and I, and I'm the, the portion that I took from it was something that I think is representative of the entire reformed, um, tradition, but it only plays a small part in the second Helvetic confession, but I, we're going to cover kind of the high points in each confession. And I, I really like the way, um, the confession speaks to the work of our hands the other six days of the week, um, because I think that's a real reformed emphasis that we're not just spiritual people, what we do in church on Sunday, but the reformed view of life is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all of life. And so all of it should be seen as sacred. Yeah, yeah, um, that's funny. My next question was gonna be, why did you choose that particular passage? I thought it was super fascinating, this, um, idea of really focusing on what it looks like to serve the Lord in really tangible ways, like with our life. And um, we all do it. I mean, you and I probably do it because we are in the ministry, but there's this kind of thought that, oh, if we're committing to serving God every day, that must mean we're working in a church. And I so appreciated yesterday that you were like, that's not the case, actually. And 
And quite frankly, there were several reformers that talked about there are much, there are even more higher callings, right? John Calvin talked very much about the civil servant as that is the most sacred and uh, important of all the callings. And you talked, yes, so on Sunday, you talked about how you met this guy and he's going to be a doctor and which we all think of this really super important vocation, but that he was really struggling because this is something that serves the Lord. And uh, and you made a joke, but I just wanted to circle back because I thought it was funny, but also a really interesting conversation when he said, do you think I should go to seminary or should I go into the ministry? And you joked and said, heavens, no, but I am wondering, like, what do you think about that? Would you send someone, your child grows up and says, gosh, I really want to go to seminary. I want to go into the ministry. I feel like that's, that's what I need to do. What do you think about that? Would you encourage someone to go to seminary? Yes, I think so. As a sense of call. Um, if, if someone is, I think there's a number of reasons you would go to seminary for, for, for theological education. I think if you had one of the reasons I went was because I had questions I felt like I needed to answer before I could move on with the rest of my life. And only in that process did I feel a sense of call to uh, congregational ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody sets out to want to, to serve in a church and they feel God's call, I think absolutely that's great. Um, what I felt like and what I hope the message from that story was, is as I got to know Kelvin, it wasn't that It wasn't that he was feeling a call to congregational ministry or to go to seminary. It was more that he felt like being a doctor was lesser than that. They maybe he couldn't really serve the Lord as a doctor, which I was just like flabbergasted. But then as I, I paid attention and talked a lot to a lot of people about this, there is a sense sometimes that can I serve Christ um, in the mundane, uh, non uh, traditionally sacred vocations um, and so I, par, part of my emphasis is, yes, you can, absolutely. Um, and that's a real distinctive of the Reformed uh, tradition and kind of our perspective on Christ's call in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and like I said, I think there are some places where you, well, no, I think the way I want to say, say this is the most faithful way to serve Christ is by seeking out what is the call, particular call you have on your life. And so if serving in a church is not your call, then that's not going to be the most faithful way to carry out what God has for you. Yeah. So, and I yeah. think everybody's called to, I mean, serve the church, serve in the church. It just doesn't mean you get your paycheck from it and, yeah. um, and you have an office and all that. Right. But, um, and, and, tr- and honestly, as we move into a more post Christendom world where there's less institutional stability for the institutional church, we need people to be more creative. I mean, God, yeah. I mean, you think about the Apostle Paul was not working for a church. He was a tent maker. He literally made tents and paid for himself and his ministry. Um, And his job, what he got paid for, was actually not his vocation. That just um, provided him the opportunity to do the stuff he was called to do, to travel all around and preach and minister. And so I think that let's not forget that that the church is probably has this great legacy of people um, having a job, but doing ministry outside of it. Yes. Well, and the research that's coming out of, uh, those who are, are, um, we call it new church development, but those people who are planting worshiping communities, the research that's coming out of that is that the ones that are successful and kind of take hold and grow as communities are the ones that are being led by people who are bivocational pastors who are working at Starbucks and building this 
community of people or whatever. And, um, and I think there's something to that because it puts you in the community. It gives you a, it, it gives you a time investment, but also the people that you're gathering together, they're all invested in. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Lindsay. And, and I think you bring up like one, one of the reasons that is, is because at least from my experience going to seminary, I got my mind all tied up in knots. And when I got out, it was very difficult for me to communicate clearly. I could talk to you about like the imminent Trinity, um, the economic Trinity, um, the relation, you know, ontology, uh, yes. you know, the exp different views of uh, theological language. I, but most people sit in the pews or most people that you would meet at a restaurant or a bar, their eyes would glaze over if you start. They'd go, who in yes. the heck cares about that? And so one of the things I've really tried to work hard at is how can we use everyday language to communicate these important truths? And I think people who are bivocational, I think, although maybe the Apostle Paul is not a great example, but <laughs> the people that, that have one foot in the church, one foot in the world, if ever, the lives of everyday people are much more effective in communicating God's love, um, the tenability, um, the rationality of the Christian faith. I mean, Karl Barth was famous for saying we should, you know, we should do, uh, we should live and, you know, do our theology with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Yes. Right? Yes. So we've, we've got to be between these two poles and bringing them together in conversation with each other. And that's one of the reasons, like, I mean, <laughs> I find like, I'll talk about sports and people will be like, finally, I understand, you know, because you, know, <laughs> uh, you use an idiom that I'm familiar with, you know, right. if you're talking about 16th century medieval Thomist uh, uh, theology, they're just like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right, right. And, and so I think it behooves us um, to, to, to work as best we can to, um, in a way to bring these two kind of worlds and cultures together in conversation with each other. Absolutely. And so then by definition, right, the people, this idea of fulfilling the vocation that God has for us means that it's not exclusively left to those who work in the church because these, that we, Russell Prez is full of so many faithful men and women who are serving in the church and then serving in the world at the same time. And so they are constantly doing that same work of, of pulling those things together and, and being faithful to the gospel. So mm -hmm. Okay, so this particular part of our conversation, right, is very reformed of us, this idea of being, and you talked a lot about being engaged in the world and, um, and kind of talked about the Greco-Roman world and the point of life was to escape it, but the scripture calls us to engaging, which I very much agree, but I am a very good reformed theologian. So I guess that then when you were kind of talking through that, and even now as we're talking through that, I do wonder though, what about the role of those who are, who feel called to more of a um, stepping outside a kind of a lifestyle. So the, you know, these days we would look at like monks or whatever, but even in scripture, look at John the Baptist and, and those who stepped outside of kind of the everyday culture and, and felt more called to that particular Mm -hmm. lifestyle how does all of this speak to them well i i think that's a calling and that's a vocation mm -hmm. so i think the early church mothers and fathers and the early church actually went out into the desert they called the desert mothers and fathers they went mm -hmm. out into the desert to fast to pray and to do battle with the devil um and, and the desert was seen as a world of um spiritual battle to be done um and one of the ways you know jesus you know you're going and being tempted in the desert 
in the wilderness, uh, you know, after fasting for 40 days is another example of that. And I think today, you know, monasteries, um, honestly, through much of leading up to the Re Reformation, the places of real growth in Christian ministry, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, were monasteries, were convents. But my thing is, is like, it doesn't just have to be in those places. But one of the, um, you know, I didn't want to create too much of a straw man when I was arguing, uh, when I was uh, preaching, you know, so I talk about the re Reformed tradition, but you notice at the very end, I finish with a quote from Flannery O'Connor as a young girl, who is, um, who is um, Roman Catholic, and very self-consciously so, but she taught, she uses the language of vocation as a writer, as an artist, and so my thing is like, this, we're looking at historical trends, and I'm, I'm not trying to stereotype too much, but trying to say, in general, that's kind of how we think about it. And I'm saying this is part of the tradition that we need to pull forward and take on with us. But even in the Roman Catholic side of things, somebody like Flannery O'Connor gets, she could find in her own tradition that truth and pull it out and apply it to her life and God can work through it. Mm. Um, and so I just, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I want to emphasize that because I think it's a misconception that a lot of people have. And I think that's really sad. And I think it prevents people from, um, fully flourishing and fully stepping into uh, the life God calls them to. Mm, mm, that's good. That's good. And so powerful. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, on a much more shallow level. It, so Friday night, we're at this high school football game, right? And it's this, it's the Roswell Milton football game, which is a major rivalry and it's close. Roswell does not pull it out, but at, toward the end, when we think Roswell has a shot at tying it up, then like, half of the stands that I'm sitting in turns around and says, Lindsay, you have a direct line, right? You need to pray for God to fix this, right? I forgot to, to help Roswell pull it out. And granted, my prayers did not work. But I, I do think that there's, you know, we kind of have the stereotype that, that pastors have some sort of direct line uh, to God. And so I like, I think that's so powerful, this point that you make that that's, um, that, that that's not, that, that, that it's accessible and uh, and the fact well, that everybody has just as much a responsibility. That's it. That's it. it, it you, just because you're a pastor, you've been set apart to serve, to preach, to do the work of ministry doesn't mean other people have any less of a direct line to God. Right. Right. And that's the Reformation priesthood of all believers. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, so, and, and also I would say, uh, Praying. Well, I don't say people shouldn't pray about sporting events. I don't know if um, that shows the full understanding of what prayer is and how it makes a difference in the world. <laughs> I told them it was their fault because they weren't praying, and maybe if they would, I'll pray more. <laughs> maybe God so. would sign favor on Roswell a little better. I don't know. <laughs> well, and the, the thing is, it's always funny. Is you know, we have people. Uh, you know, we have RPC people on both sides of that rivalry. And so what do you do when, you know, people are praying uh, against each other? <laughs> right. So we need more prayers. I'm just saying, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. So, okay. So actually very related to that, but a, um, a debate that I find super fascinating and interesting um, is you talked about when you, when you were talking, when you're reading this really gorgeous passage um, about the bread and the bread maker and, and the, um, it's painting this picture of this really kind of disgusting gruff man who is producing this really beautiful bread 
Um, and, and you were kind of driving home the point that the gifts are of God and not of the human, but that God's still working through it. And if this is a poignant point for me, because um, my pastor growing up my whole, he was my pastor my whole life. And um, when I actually, I was in seminary and all this stuff came out about him. It turns out he had done, he had a long list of transgressions that got him, they removed his ordination. And, and so the church really struggled for a long time this, because we felt like we'd gotten all these gifts from him. You know, he did our marriages and baptized our babies and all of this work that had been done. And so there was this kind of like, wait, is that, is it null and void? Because the guy who did it turns out wasn't super godly in and of himself. And so there was a lot of kind of wrestling with that these gifts of God our gifts of God, that, that God is using people in our lives, but that those gifts come from God and not from the person themselves, which I think is a point that you were, mm-hmm. when you were talking about the bread, I just kept thinking about my pastor growing up and that same thing that turns out he was very gruff, but that doesn't, that didn't negate the beautiful bread in our lives that he was producing because right. it was really God doing the work. And I think it was a couple of weeks ago. I mean, one of the great, um, heresies of the early church was did the work of the spirit they were thinking primarily preaching the sacraments so baptism and communion um was it dependent on the righteousness the moral uh, excellence of the pastor yeah yeah and augustine and the, the the church you know down through the ages affirmed no it's not dependent on and so when I always remind our elders, but I remind myself, you know, when I get up and let's say I've, I've yelled at my family and I was a real horrible husband the night before on a Saturday night, and I come in to celebrate communion on Sunday morning and I stand up there, can I do it? And that's why when we say, this isn't my table, this isn't the Presbyterian table, this is the Lord's table. And God is the, we are just placeholders that God is the one at work. Okay. And I think we as, um, as leaders have to be, have to remind ourselves and remind others always again and again, because there's a sense of idolatry. There's a sense of, we want to put people on a pedestal to think, um, you know, they're perfect or they're, they're without flaws. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, outside of you probably, but you know, for the rest (laughs) of us pastors, um, you know, we, we struggle and hopefully we're going to, we're in the process of growing in Christ and experiencing God's grace, but let's never confuse things. It's not because of our moral perfection um, right. that we're getting, that's why we get the job done. It's God's, right. God is at work. Right, right. And so in those places, then when we are afraid we're not good enough or whatever, I think that that's an encouraging reminder yes. too, that, that it, God's the one doing the work. And so yeah. we're bold and go out and do that work that God's called us to. And you, um, and this is probably a quote, and I didn't write down who said it, but you said this such a beautiful, this was so beautiful when you talked about the call is the place where your deep gladness and the world's great hunger meet. Was that a quote or those are Jeff's yeah, words? That's from Frederick Beekner, who was, oh, yeah. who's written, I mean, a lo- bunch of nonfiction books. Of, yeah, I think he won a Pulitzer, our National Book Award for a fiction book about a monk, which was uh, really celebrated. Um, he was not the most outgoing uh, person, but he'd written a bunch of sermons. Um, and so if people are interested, I think like, I think it's what we call the ABCs of faith is where that, um, that oh, yeah, uh, yeah. 
that uh, quote comes from, there's like, um, uh, what's the what's the one about secrets? Telling secrets. Uh, yes. Really yes. good. Um, and for I think for the he talks about um, trauma and tragedy that happened in his family that he felt like he couldn't be honest about. And I think most of us really identify. And people that read him, he's so eloquent and verb and vulnerable about where he comes from that I think it's been really his work has been really powerfully and moving in people's lives because it just engages them in a way that speaks to a great truth of the human experience yeah. um, that people need to hear. So I, and I love that quote. And he had just died, I think, last week or two weeks ago. Um, and so I kind of wanted to, you know, give a little uh shout out to Frederick Beekner because he's, yes. he's he's awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I have both of those books too. And I think, and I think that we don't think of, and I'm really going to get into this, this upcoming Sunday, but like, we don't think about our vocation about, I don't know how many of us think about where, where is our deep gladness? Mm. Where, where mm -hmm. do I find joy? Where am I, um, where, where, where do I find blessedness and happiness? And like most of us, at least I think of like, where do I find struggle? Where do I, where do I have to work really hard? Where do I have to try, um, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to get after it. And he speaks in this way of no, where's your deep gladness. Maybe that's the place God calls you to where that meets the hung, the world's hunger. Yeah. 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 And I want our kids, especially our children who are still young enough to make these decisions about what their future is going to look like, to have a picture of their future where they're thinking, God, God's purpose is for me to be glad, me to have, mm. um, you know, wellness, flourish. And so I need to, and so that they, they think about God's call in that way and not one of struggle or, um, you know, uh, uh, trying really hard. But that it's one what to pay attention to how one how is God working in one's life and making them glad? Where do mm. they feel blessed? And then seeing where that corresponds and intersects with the, the world's great need, the world's great hunger. Yeah, that's so good. And I love that you're using the word glad instead of happy. Because I think that there's there's something, there's a lot more depth to that concept, right? And so in the midst of something that's giving you gladness, or like you said, wellness there could potentially still be struggle in that, um, but you're not relying on like a surface emotion to dictate if you're in the right place or not, but rather looking much deeper than that. It's something that has to do with your wellness and your gladness. That's mm -hmm. good. That's good, Jeff. You write all, you should write all that down. Good. Okay. One last question, um, because I, I do legitimately wonder about this. What if your job your vacation the way vocation the way you spend your time we can i'm even willing to say whatever gives you gladness what if it really isn't unto the lord like there there just are some things people are doing with their time their vocations that they're very good at that just they can't be holy i can't imagine that those things are holy so then what like did i need to get a new job i you know what i mean like yeah sure i had a um uh, I remember I was in an ethics class at, in seminary and um, I came up with this idea. I said, I said, what if like, what if I find my calling to be an assassin? You know, that's my deep gladness. You, you know, you think about the uh, show Barry on HBO that um, uh, uh, what's his name? Her is, uh, is in it, like, so 
Well, I think we have to be a part of a community of people that holds us accountable for, for our vocations, our callings, and to keep us honest, that we're not deluded, that we're not given to illusion, self-deception, because human beings are. And, um, you know, you'll see, actually, in uh, Shakespeare, I think it's Henry V, I want to say, um, golly, is it Falstaff? Well, one of the characters says uh, he's a he's a um, he's a thief, and and somebody critiques him, and he says, "You can't be a thief. You can't steal." And he goes, "Oh, tis my vocation. Tis my vocation." Mm. And it's Shakespeare's way of critiquing this language of vocation can also be used to um, delude someone, to give into illusion, to to be deceived. And so I think we need people to hold us accountable um, about those places that maybe we're lying to ourselves. Because um, we, you know, heaven knows we know enough religious folks. You, you can, it doesn't, you don't need to read too much on the internet or, um, you know, Google like the failings of church leadership or something. You can see how even people who in places of power exploit people and that's not okay. And so we need to always along with the language of vocation and calling, we need to have a language of the virtues, okay? Mm -hmm. And the virtues, um, love, joy, or, or sorry, um, faith, hope, and love would be the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And so, and then, you know, the, the moral virtues would be like justice. Are we giving people their due? Or are we treating them as beloved um, children of God? And if we're not, well, then we need something's wrong with our vocation. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. That's really helpful. I, like I said, I really appreciate this conversation and, and all of this kind of thinking around kind of the greater themes, not just of the second Helvetic, but like you said, of the whole reformation, which are so fundamental to, to all the things that we do, how we go about worship, how we go about understanding ourselves and our role in the world. Uh, what's our confession next Sunday? So we're doing the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, and you know there's kind of three versions of it in our um, Book of Confessions. You have the just the conf the confession, then you have the the shorter and the larger or longer uh, catechism that's question and answer. And so we're really going to focus in on the first question, which is uh, what is the chief end or what is the purpose of human beings? Yeah. What yes. The one. End? It's the one catechism that I memorized in my uh, <laughs> my, my um, confirmation class. That's the only one I can still remember. Yeah. So that will be good. And that's a, a you know what's interesting about that one. I don't know if you're going to get into this or not, but so many of our brothers and sisters who are in other um, branches of the Presbyterian Church really rely on that confession a ton. And so um, that's it's one that. I was going to say we could all agree on, but there's plenty of parts of that confession. I don't know if we really all agree on or not, but um, it's one people have familiarity with. Yeah. Yeah. And I, there, I mean, there's some things I deeply disagree about um, the Westminster confession, uh, double predestination being one thing um, because I don't think it's biblical. <laughs> and remember, this is the thing about the confessions. The Bible is normative. The Bible has authority yes. over the confessions. Yes. So this is why you always have to keep writing confessions. Yes. Because you never get them. You never, oh, well, we figured out the truth. We've locked it down. No. The Bible, as we return to it with our lives and paying attention to the world, discerning God's moving, then we have to go back and say, okay, maybe we misunderstood some things. And we'll get into yeah. um, 
you know, and actually in the Barman Declaration, it uses some of the Heidelberg Catechism's language to critique the, the yes. Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay? Yep. Yep. You know, uh, yes. And yeah, and there's places all through as you work your way through the book of confessions that the confessions kind of go back and speak to older confessions and disagree with them. And yeah. which speaking of other confessions, I know that we're not preaching on the brief statement of faith. But uh, we should consider doing uh, uh, closing the distance on a brief statement because it's it's such an important one in kind of the history of our denomination. But it's all about reunion, which are those that's some words that we could probably stand to hear yeah. these days too that's about coming point. together. So maybe we'll great squeeze point. one of these in um, about the brief statement because it's that's a good one. Good. The, I really, as always, so appreciate your time well, you, to, to do these but also your wisdom and just your thoughts on all this I you're just really well, thoughtful you. about this it's really so thank fun you. we're having fun and so hopefully people feel blessed by it yeah yeah okay good well we will look forward to being together and i actually won't be me with you next week but i will say this for people that are listening to the podcast to that because of the rpc golf tournament we're going to record on tuesday again next week so we'll do tuesday at noon if you want to come on live on facebook or um, we'll post it after that as a podcast, of course, but it'll be Tuesday after noon when we post it. So awesome. All right, Jeff, happy Tuesday to you. Thanks, Lizzie, you too. Take care. Okay. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.